Welcome to part three of the KAI Foundation 5 podcast series, our five-part introduction to building better teams and great leaders with the Curtin Adaption Innovation Inventory. KAI is the world's foremost measure for problem-solving style. It is used widely to create cohesive and productive teams and effective leaders. It's been in use for over 40 years and is supported by a large body of academic research from around the world. In these five podcasts, we want to provide you with an understanding of why KAI is so effective, so powerful and indeed life-changing for so many teams and team leaders. Today's third part is entitled Welcome to the land of the big idea, the creative innovators. And in it, we're going to be looking specifically at the role and effectiveness of leaders and team members on the more innovative end of the KAI inventory and how such people approach order and structure and why it's vital they understand and appreciate the creative adapters in their teams. My name is Dave Harris and joining me today, I have two guests who know a thing or two about creative innovation and are gonna help us to explore this topic. Our regular guest, Dr. Ewan Jenkins, is a Toronto-based KAI certified coach and describes himself as a practitioner of the practical. He understands cognitive theory and complex system science, but more importantly, he also knows how to make that theory applicable in today's business world. Michael Wiseman is the CEO of Synky, that's S-Y-N-Q-Y, a retail media platform for retailers that hate ads, where he works with global brands such as Unilever, Pepsi, Nestle and Starbucks. Amongst many other achievements, he's a published author in seven languages, believe it or not, and has managed and successfully grown five different startups and turned around existing businesses too, creating over $700 million in revenue growth in the process. He also happens to be KAI certified, and I'm sure he won't mind me saying that he's well over on the innovative end of the KAI inventory. Michael, thank you for joining us and, and good to see you again, Dr. Ewan Jenkins. Why don't we start this one by getting Ewan to just tell us what is a creative innovator? Let's start at the beginning. Let's introduce this concept of the paradox of structure. The paradox of structure, as explained by Curtin in his theory, is structure is both enabling and limiting at the same time. And what he described is that creative adapters like to use a lot of structure, history of past successes, rules and regulations, processes to solve their problems. Whereas creative innovators prefer to have less structure, they want to think outside of the box, they don't want to be, in their view, shackled by processes, so they will be more exploratory and come up with novel ideas. Everybody needs structure, but adapters need more structure than innovators, and innovators need very little structure at all. So one of the things we're going to find out today is how do high-performing innovators use minimal amount of structure to get things done? Well, Michael, I think that's a, that's a challenge to you then from, from you in there. How do you get things done? I think let's start with a mindset. I find experientially that the average uh, innovator has a high level of ADD. So the innovator default mindset is to be all over the place in terms of where the mind goes. There aren't uh, constraints on the mind and the average uh, just observation of life. So now you find yourself in a situation where you've been given some structure. If you wanna make an innovator sweat, give that person a form. Make them fill out something that has rules and structure. 
because their brain isn't designed that way. The brain isn't designed to to be constrained. And when you are given a task to solve a problem, you will use the natural default mindset, which is to let your mind create associations that are not necessarily limited to the structure in which you were given. And so, you know, one of the things that Curtin talked about is that uh, structure is enabling for an adapter. And it's enabling for an adapter because what it is doing is uh, reducing uncertainty. It's reducing scope. Uh, it's binding the problem. But for the innovator, uh, it is uh, reducing the ability to, uh, to be able to answer the question honestly. Because if I know that I can come up with an answer outside of the paradigm, and you are limiting my ability to look at questions or things that are outside that uh, structure, you are going to restrict me and I'm going to rebel against those restrictions. And so that plays a very big role because in the course of my mind wandering, I am making observations that maybe others aren't making. I'm finding patterns of behavior that happen you know, if you see a, a leaf and you look at the structure of a leaf and you look at the structure of a coastline and you say, oh, these things are, are similar kind of pattern. They're completely random, um, but you can see these similarities. So you, you learn over the course of your life to trust your mind to go into places it doesn't otherwise go and then use those insights to guide what you're trying to do. And so I think that when a person is tasked with a, a problem to solve, they tend to go to the natural predisposition of the brain to solve the problem as the brain is, you know, grown up solving problems. And would you say that there is a benefit to that approach? I mean, you know, I, mean, I guess you would say that because that is the approach you take. But uh, so, it's, uh, so in some ways, it's a bit of a daft question. But what I mean by that is, you know, are, is there a sort of evidential benefit to society, to teams in general of that type of approach? Okay, so let me dispel a myth uh, that you said. It is not a choice. You know, Curtin would argue that it is very... Uh, tied to very early constructions uh, in people's brains. And while he did not purposefully did not go very, very early into uh, childhood discovery, he really believes that it is uh, something that's hard ingrained. So it's not a choice. I don't choose to be to think in a uh, in a way that an innovator thinks I just do. OK, now, um, do I think it is superior in certain circumstances. Again, I think that Curtin is dead on right in that we as uh, executives trying to improve the um, cognitive diversity of our organizations have to think about what is the right skill set for the problem space being solved. And the criteria that Curtin used, which I think is dead on right, is that in times of high certainty, adapters are vastly superior decision makers because innovators will create disruptions that are unhelpful. But in times of high uncertainty or threats from external environments, 
innovators are vastly superior. And so it is always challenging to think about who is the best to handle what task. And I would say since uh, learning about this principle and applying it in my businesses, uh, I'm very purposeful about that. The piece of gold uh, that was just dropped um, that I've not heard expressed so uh, elegantly and lucidly before is if you impose too much structure on an innovator, it reduces their opportunity to answer the question honestly. It's a very useful piece of insight. Um, and Michael also said that there's a predisposition that you are born with around what your preferred problem-solving style is. And this has been supported then by so-called test-retest data. In other words, if I take the KAI when inventory when I am 12 and I have a score, let's say, of 86, and then I take it again at 22, at 32, 42, 52, 62, and so on, the data suggests that my score will be 86 plus or minus five points. And I've seen that in my practice as well. So your preferred score, your preferred way of solving problems doesn't change over time. But your displayed behavior actually can be different. So for example now, Michael, we've heard, has been involved with startups and turnarounds. That requires some level of attention to detail, some filling in of forms around mergers and acquisitions, loans and dispositions and so on. For that period of time, a high innovator like Michael will, go, will display more adaptive behavior, but it comes at a cost. The further an innovator or an adapter goes away from their preferred score, the more expensive it is psychologically. And you pay for it in terms of motivation and time. And what good leaders do is they set up conditions to allow individuals to be in their preferred way of working most of the time and only going out of it for the minimal amount of time. I wonder whether we could talk a little bit about now to, to look at some examples of some perhaps famous creative innovators and how they have operated and how they have uh, and, and how they've been successful or otherwise uh, thanks to their their style of problem solving you can look in all domains and you can see people who are high on the uh the innovator scale uh you can look at somebody like an einstein you can look at somebody like a steve jobs or a tesla you can look at uh, people like a Pablo Picasso or, uh, you know, there's a whole range of folks uh, in music, you know, a Stravinsky or, or whomever, who within their domain was um, less constrained. But the innovator can live in that domain that takes two concepts or more and starts to put them against each other and tries to, out of that, emerge something new. So I, I personally look at somebody like a Tesla as a high innovator and somebody like an Edison as a high adapter. And people are very confused by that because they think that uh, innovation equals innovator. And I think that that's a very dangerous thing to look at. To me, the tell for Einstein is the, uh, excuse me, of Edison is the quote that says, uh, I tried it a thousand times and it didn't work right. What did he do? 
He tested, he adjusted, he tested, he adjusted, he tested, he adjusted. He tweaked and tweaked and tweaked and tweaked. That's not, a, that's not an innovator's approach. An innovator's approach maybe says, uh, I'm going to come at this from a, a different direction. I wonder whether we could talk a little bit now about how uh, innovators work with adapters. Because obviously the reality is that we're all in this world together. We're often all in teams together. And so we do have to make this work, however different our approaches are to problem solving. What is that relationship? I mean, can there be adaption without innovation? Can there be innovation without adaption? Well, you know, Curtin would say, of course there is. We call most of those companies failures. A Curtin's perspective, which I think is dead on right, is that the complexity of the world is such and the dy dynamism of the world is such that you need cognitive diversity and that the greatest weakness, even in this moment in time where there is a lot of cultural bias or cultural uh, diversity issues or discussion of cultural diversity, uh, I have not found cultural diversity to be meaningful in the workplace. And what I mean by that is that doesn't create problems and that doesn't solve problems. That I would rather have cognitive diversity because that is very important to the health of the business. One of the things that actually is undocumented in entrepreneurial theory that I've ever seen is that the growth in the maturity of the processes, you know, you get a company that's got about 100 employees and it really needs to start to build processes. What actually disrupts the growth is not the creation of processes, but the people in power are typically more innovative than the people who need to build the process or more adapters. And so you have this cognitive conflict between the two as you build the infrastructure for a stable uh, operating business. And so this is one thing that you've got to deal with. The second thing that you have to deal with is um, Curtin's idea of problem B. Uh, if you haven't explained it previously, problem A is the problem that people come together to solve. And problem B is the problem that emerges with people of different cognitive style coming together to solve problem A. And his belief, and I have 30-something years of empirical uh, validation, that problem B is always bigger than problem A. And so what makes a se successful company is allowing the cognitive diversity and managing to enable the diversity, not fight against it. Okay, because what most adapters misunderstand is style and preference versus motive. That if I am really bad at filling out my expense report or I'm really bad at filling out my such and such report, it is not because I'm lazy. It is not because I'm disorganized, although I might be. Uh, it is because it is very painful. And so I think that on the other side, there is an insensitivity that says, hey, we're going to have this structure. And the reality is you can have that structure, but you will end up pushing out the innovators. They will not succeed in that environment. And so we have to recognize that a lot of social hierarchies within organizations 
are grounded in cognitive style way more than they are in political style. But you find the groupings uh, come together because of cognitive style. You just talk the same way. So I think that if you go in with the mindset that um, you're going to run a meritocracy, you want people on the range of cognitive style so that you can handle the diversity of problems that we need to solve. And I think that one thing that um, is easy for us to fall into is this uh, pejorative mindset uh, or of some uh, this I'm more superior than you because I'm more of an X than a Y. I think this is probably the most destructive thing. Ewan, that's a really important point, isn't it? I mean, the understanding, the trust, the respect for people who have a different problem solving style is clearly vital, isn't it, to the success of an organisation? It is. And I think what what Michael is highlighting there is understanding how different people think and then using their strengths with your strengths if they are different for mutual benefit is core. So I just want to come back to something that Michael said earlier about the way that innovators are inventive versus the way adapters are inventive. You you can think of innovators almost as magpies. There's a myth around that that everything that innovators do is all brand new. That it's novelty in its uh, in its true form. In fact, most of the brand new things tend to be initially incurred by adapters, and then brought together by innovators. So, for example, if you look at Steve Jobs, what Steve Jobs did was he basically took dots of existing technology, mouse, uh, user interface and so on, took dots of existing technology, existing structure, and pulled them together in an unusual way, which was novel. And then he worked with adapters then to solidify those links and expand and scale what had been made. From a marketing perspective, instead of using a demographic around age or gender, he actually said, maybe unconsciously, my target audience is uh, folks with KAI scores of 115 and above. So the thing is then, if you solve, the, and, and this, is where, this is where it's a fantastic commercial example of how problem B was reduced. He actually started to make a brand that resonated with the preferred problem-solving style of a portion of the market, and as a result of that, got in a huge amount, huge amount of loyalty because people were saying, he's one of us. And then when you start to see with the iPhone and so on basically going to mass market, that those high innovators were rebellious. We're losing our brand. It's very interesting. Yeah, yeah, it it, it is. You know, one of the things that uh, people talk about is, uh, is innovative thinking considered preferred. In America, for sure it is. Uh, you have Robin William standing on the top, the top of the desk saying carpe diem, seize the day. The innovator stereotype is very strong in American culture. Go to Japan, it ain't the same. You know, I worked for the Japanese for almost a decade. Uh, the nail that sticks out gets hammered down. It's not the same. What Curtin said is the normal distribution was, was similar globally, but the cultures rewarded and punished one method over another. 
as a cultural, sociological construct, not a psychological, individual construct. And so you look at places like Israel, and I have done lots of work with Israeli companies. I've been involved in at least three Israeli startups and um, advised probably 50 over the course of my consulting career. And guess what you find in Israel, which is considered a startup nation, it's considered high on the innovator scale? You find lots of adaptives, lots and lots and lots of adaptives. Some of the most adapter-oriented people are the people I met in Israel. Uh, so it is not that the culture may reward or brand or stereotype the iconoclast, but that's not the world. That's, not, that's just the, the marketing of, of preference. So before we finish, uh, I wonder whether we could just talk about how adapters can make the most of their innovator colleagues. Uh, Michael, would you, could you address that one for us first? Three things. Number one, when asking them to give ideas, uh, try to get them to focus on adaptive ideas because those are the ones that you're most likely to accept anyway. And if, but be open to, um, to a flood of ideas, but focus on the adaptive ones. They can do it. That's number one. Number two, don't be so concerned in the method. Let them use whatever cognitive style and approach they wish to solve the problem. And number three, if the innovator is coming to you with an observation and a worry, and you don't understand, trust them. Because innovators see threats from outside the system. Adapters see threats to the system. Both are useful. But if you are oblivious to the threats from outside the system because you don't have that worldview, and somebody comes and says that threat is happening, maybe that threat is not to the degree that the person says it is, but don't dismiss it. Trust them a little bit, and you might be protected from a divergent, unexpected threat. Uh, there's always, you know, as a, as a student of history, there's rarely been a historical event that somebody did not predict. Very rarely. But the person who predicted it was not in power and was not listened to. Ewan, have you anything to add to that? So three things. Number one, remember that uh, if you're relatively more adaptive, remember that the your relatively more innovative colleague is the same as you. They want to be involved in problem solving and they want to be valued for their contribution. So that's an important thing. They're not a foreign beast. Number two, relax. You'll find that innovators, their idea waistline will expand but it will eventually shrink back down to stuff that can be used. So just give them a bit of space because they need space to be able to think. And finally, don't be afraid to slay their ideas because whilst uh, we adapters may have fewer ideas and they're more likely to be usable first time around, innovators are quite the reverse. They have a production line of ideas and they don't mind if you slay them destroy them because there are more coming along. So don't be afraid to critique your colleagues. I would add, but be wise. What do I mean by that? Separate the idea from the issue behind the idea. When an innovator comes up with an idea that seems way out of the box, 
seek to understand what is the problem that you believe this solves and you might be surprised because as an innovator what you're doing in your mind is you're doing scenario planning when i when i do this i don't live today i live anywhere between 10 to 20 years from now that's where my average day is i'm always thinking about if i do this that leads to that that leads to that that leads to that and i'm 10 15 steps 20 steps down that road and I see if we continue down this path, we're going to face this issue. So when I go and solve a problem, I'm solving a problem that's a residual effect two, three, five years down the road that you don't even know exists. And so if you just look at the idea and you don't understand what the idea was trying to overcome, you will not understand the real important thing. The, the innovator will come up with another idea. You is completely right about that. We are factories. We, we manufacture ideas a million times a second. doesn't matter to us if you say no to the idea. What matters to us is you understand the underlying circumstance we're trying to get around. That's the thing that I'm going to fight hard about is don't you understand this threat is coming from here? Or if we continue down this path, we're going over a cliff? That's the thing that I'm going to fight for. The specific idea, the recommendation to overcome the problem, I'm much less uh, concerned with. And that's a very important distinction. You've been listening to the KAI Foundation 5 podcast. Welcome to the land of the big idea, the creative innovators, with our special guests, Dr. Ewan Jenkins and Michael Wiseman. If you found the discussion interesting, you can find out more about the KAI system and its first-class team development potential at www.kaicenter.com. In the meantime, part four of the KAI Foundation 5 podcast series, Welcome to the Land of Getting Things Done, the Creative Adapters, will be along very soon. So please subscribe and keep listening.